it's the 9th of July, 2017, and this is episode 337 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Andreas Antonopoulos. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about kind of the finer points and some of the arguments against SegWit. I uh, made a post into the uh, Reddit r slash BTC channel, which is broadly representative, I think, of some of the people who are more skeptical of SegWit. I'm not saying it's everybody. I'm not saying it's comprehensive. But in an effort to get a broader perspective than just kind of my own, I went looking for a lot of questions and we came up with a lot of questions. We're probably not going to have a chance to get to all of them. I'm going to paraphrase some of them. And if we don't get to yours, I apologize. All of this is about segregated witness. Segregated witness is a thing that appears to be happening, you know, by hook or by crook. For a long time, I thought that there was consensus behind the idea that segregated witness was a good thing on balance. And after we did a couple of episodes about it, it sort of became obvious that that was not an opinion shared by everybody, even if it was perhaps shared by a lot of people. So I went looking, found some what I think are reasonable complaints, and I'm curious to kind of talk to you about it. So I got a lot of stuff to bounce off you, Andres, the first time you're seeing all of it. So are you ready? Yeah, do it. Andres, before we get into it, can you just recap real quickly what segregated witness, what's it supposed to do? What's the goal of this? Segregated witness is an architectural change to the way transactions are constructed, transmitted across the network, and stored. What it does is it separates the signatures. Signatures in this particular context are called witnesses. And the signatures, which are not always digital signatures, they might be simple script solutions in the, in the case of a script payment. But whatever it is that is authorizing a transaction, that's the witness, and it's segregated. It's basically moved outside of the transaction itself, outside of the data structure of the transaction. Then it accompanies the transaction in in a separate structure, which is the witness structure. This has a number of different effects, but the primary effect is to solve a longstanding, fairly serious problem within Bitcoin in its original design, which is that... um, the signature signs everything in the transaction for itself, meaning that once a transaction is signed, no one but the original signer can change any of the things that are in the transaction, but the signature itself. And the fact that others can change the signature in subtle ways that retain validity is called transaction malleability. It can produce a transaction whose transaction identifier is different, but that is in all other ways identical and valid to the original transaction. This causes a problem because that means you can't chain transactions together. Transaction malleability is a problem. It's a problem that prevents a lot of advancements in the way we do innovation in Bitcoin. Segregated witness actually addresses four or five issues simultaneously, some of them through the transaction malleability fix, some of them through the way that the size of a transaction is calculated for accounting purposes in terms of the block size. So segregated witness fixes transaction malleability. It also, since the signatures are calculated in a different way or evaluated in a different way because now they're not part of the transaction itself, that also allowed the developers to fix a problem in the scaling of the algorithm for signature validation called quadratic hashing, 
whereby you could construct uh, transactions with signatures that take very long to validate uh, essentially a denial of service factor on the network. The way the data is measured in terms of the block size has changed completely with, with the introduction of segregated witness. Instead of measuring block size with a block size limit, instead there is a new measure introduced called block weight. And that replaces block size as the primary measure. And block weight is calculated by counting the base part of the transaction and then counting the witness part of the transaction separately with a different metric, specifically a discount of 75%. And part of that is to rebalance some of the economic incentives around the creation and consumption of the transaction outputs, the the spendable coins themselves, the units of Bitcoin, because they put quite a burden on those who maintain nodes. And at the moment, the way transactions are organized today, the fee depends on the size of the transaction. The size of the transaction is mostly on the input and signature side. And the signature is the biggest thing that's in the transaction, especially if you go to complex things like scripts, multi-sig, etc. And as a result, what that means is that it's far too expensive to consume coins than it is to create coins, which creates a perverse incentive to create more spendable units, which burdens the databases of every node. So to rebalance that, the signatures are given a discount so that the production and consumption of outputs is better balanced to represent the real burden on resources. And finally, the, the, the fourth and fairly significant change to this is that because the script mechanism used in, in SegWit is a completely new script mechanism, it now has a version number which allows future innovations such as introducing new script features by changing the version number, which opens up the door for a lot more innovation. Until now, all of the changes to the underlying scripting language were done within the scope of undefined opcodes or opcodes that do nothing, so-called NOPs. And that space was running out very quickly. And it also made it difficult to do more than one upgrade at a time. And with script versioning, we can really, really start seeing some rapid innovation in the Bitcoin scripting language. That's that's SegWit in a nutshell. It's an architectural change, changing the way we measure the blocks and the transactions within them, a solution to transaction malleability, a solution to a denial of service vector, and the versioning of the script language. I'm just going to go to the SegWit is picking winners and losers and the losers are normal transactions section <laughs> of my uh, of my notes and questions. So here's the direct quote. The majority of us big blockers are against the 75% signature discount in SegWit. We don't believe it will make the UTXO set smaller. We also don't believe that the UTXO set even needs to be smaller because only 300 megs of it is stored in RAM and the rest on SSD drives, which are fast enough even for miners. The discount has a negative effect of making normal transactions more expensive, which people who are in favor of larger blocks and on-chain scaling don't want to happen. So transactions that have one input, two output, and many more signatures than just one signature get what he thinks is unreasonably discounted. It's making things that are more complex cheaper, and it's not changing the cost structure by which we value things that are not complex. And that's very different from the way that we do things now. Is that, a, is that an improvement? Yeah, it's, it's a significant improvement. I don't really understand the distinction between normal transactions, and I guess SegWit would be the abnormal transactions. <laughs> the context of that question has a 
lot to do with Lightning Network because people perceive Blockstream or people who are in favor of sort of mostly off-chain scaling, that it's a real advantage for them to have discounted transactions that are the kind of the more complex side, because that's anything you want to do with payment channels. It's anything you want to do pay to script hash. So people who just want to make normal transactions aren't getting a benefit while everybody around them who's doing more complex and more kind of heavy things is. That, I think, is the objection here. For one thing, that's incorrect. There's no real distinction between normal and not normal transactions. Segregated witness can be used to do normal, if you like, one input to output transactions, and the discount applies just as well to those and will reduce the fee burden on those quite significantly. It has a number of other effects, including it creates kind of a new kind of node, which can keep a full copy of the blockchain without the signatures versus a full copy with the signatures or not a full copy. So until now, you have two types of nodes, right? You can have either full nodes that fully validate and keep a full copy of the entire blockchain, or you have lightweight nodes that don't fully validate and don't keep a full copy of the blockchain. Well, now you can have nodes that fully validate, but don't keep a full copy of the blockchain, kind of an in-between situation. That increases the efficiencies of running nodes, which will actually allow more people to run nodes than, than are currently running nodes and for more reasons. SegWit really is a prerequisite for any of the advanced features that might be built on Bitcoin, not just second layer solutions. SegWit is necessary, well, not necessary, but it is a prerequisite. It can be done in other ways, but SegWit is one of the ways that we can enable various upgrades, including things like Schnorr signatures, which reduce the space that a signature takes quite significantly, especially in transactions that have multiple inputs. So for consolidating, for example, Dust or Small Change UTXO, which is a big problem at the moment, these are normal transactions, not complex scripts. Single signer addresses that start with a one could be given a significant reduction in fees and the burden they impose on the network by using Schnorr signatures. Well, in order to do Schnorr signatures, you need to be able to easily upgrade script versioning, and that's one of the benefits of SegWit. If you look at the the history of development of Bitcoin transactions, you'll see the pay-to-script hash transactions, whether those are multi-sig, which is a very useful feature, or transactions that have time locks, or any other script that's more complex than the basic pay-to-public key hash, are increasing and have been increasing since the introduction of, of P2SH in 2013. At the moment, P2SH represents about 14% of all of the UTXO out there. And SegWit will have a big impact on those. But keep in mind, this is a broader market. That means that if the burden those transactions impose on the block is lesser, that means that transactions that don't have fancy scripting, just simple transactions, let's call them one input, two outputs, now have more space to play with. And by having more space to play with, they also get the benefit of low fees, even without new advancements. This isn't a bias towards more complex transactions versus simpler transactions, in my opinion. It basically recognizes that Bitcoin script has a lot of potential and there's a lot more things you can do with Bitcoin. In order to really be able to do these things, we need to properly account for the differences in those transactions. So you don't think that SegWit's witness discount essentially encourages garbage data to be added to the blockchain at a higher rate than if you weren't discounting the kind of more arbitrarily complex stuff? 
No, quite the opposite. The issue right now is that what is one person's garbage data is another person's viable application. And there's two ways really to decide whether something is garbage data or a viable application, right? One is to assign an authority, right? So you have someone who makes the decision, is this spam or is this not spam? That will give enormous power to developers. And we've seen this happen before with the debate over op return. Uh, If developers get to choose what is and isn't spam in the network, that gives them a lot of power. The other way to do that is instead of using an authority to use a market. And you basically say there is no such thing as spam. There are two types of transactions. Transactions where the issuer of the transaction believes that it's worth paying the fee and transactions where the issuer of the transaction does not believe it's worth paying the fee at the current capacity. And we let the market do price discovery on what is and isn't viable to carry over the network. You either make decisions with markets or you make decisions with authorities. I would prefer to see decisions as to what is and isn't viable as a transaction on Bitcoin be made by market forces. If your transaction is urgent and you really believe it's viable and worthwhile, then you pay to have it carried on the network. And if you don't, you don't. That's a much better model than trying to decide through the protocol, for example, what is and isn't spam. How much about segregated witness is about scaling? How much of it is about the malleability fix? How much of it is about improving kind of, you know, new additions to the scripting language? If you could put percentages or if you just want to like classify one, two, three, I I think that that would be a valuable place to go. This is a valid criticism of SegWit because SegWit is an architectural change in both how transactions are constructed, how they're propagated and how they're stored. This is not something that happens often or easily. These types of architectural changes either require a discontinuous upgrade, which would be a hard fork and has its own complexity and risk, or in the case of the way we're introducing SegWit now, or the way the developers have proposed and various solutions have proposed with a soft fork, it's still a fairly complex set of changes to the architecture. You need to change the peer-to-peer network. You need to change the transaction architecture. You need to change the storage mechanism. Now, all of that is necessary in order to address transaction malleability. There is no really other way than to modify the architecture of the transaction to solve this issue. And it's important enough to be worth doing. But if you're going to change the architecture of the transaction, then it makes sense to do three other things. One, recognize the the difference in burden between signatures and other parts action and rebalance the economics of that with a weight change. Two, add a script version number so that you can make future upgrades much easier since you're already taking that script out of the transaction and giving it a new format. If you put a version in front of it, that opens a huge door for upgrade. And three, fix the way signatures are calculated since you're going to need to rewrite the algorithm that calculates signatures anyway. That's why these four changes have been bundled together, because if you're going to make changes to the architecture of a transaction, those are like the four biggest issues that can be addressed all in one go. They're natural fit together as features. You can't really say that SegWit is doing one versus the other versus the other. SegWit is changing the architecture of the transaction. When you're going to change the architecture of the transaction, and you're going to have to 
suffer the pain of doing an upgrade and an activation and all of these things, then it's natural to address four or five issues that are related to each other that are all addressable through architecture. Is there any difference between how a SegWit transaction is secured versus a non-SegWit transaction by the Bitcoin network? There's no such thing as a SegWit transaction. And I think that's important to clarify. SegWit's not a transaction level feature, it's a UTXO level feature. Meaning that a transaction can spend both segregated witness outputs and classical outputs or traditional outputs, if you like. And it can create both segregated witness outputs and classical outputs. You can have a transaction that has all classical inputs, all classical outputs, a transaction that has all segregated witness inputs and all segregated witness outputs. And the most likely thing you will see uh, for a very long time is transactions that have a mixture of classical and segregated witness inputs and a mixture of, of classical and segregated witness outputs. If segregated witness is something that people find is useful and it's widely adopted in the software, really adoption of that accelerates. I think it's pretty widely adopted and supported by wallet software now, you're probably going to see a lot of transactions that have a mixture of witness and classic inputs and that produce only or mostly SegWit outputs because those are going to be cheaper to spend in, at a future date with a, with a separate witness. So there is a lot of economic incentive to create witness outputs, but the security is exactly the same. There is absolutely no difference in the security between a transaction that contains witness inputs or outputs and one that does not. Can a miner mine a block reward onto a SegWit address? Yes. The outputs of the Coinbase transaction, the reward outputs of the Coinbase transaction can take any valid format. We've seen Coinbase transactions go in the beginning to pay to public key, which was the original format, then pay to public key hash. We've also seen it go to pay to script hash, which may be multi-sig or some other more complex script. You can even pay to raw multi-sig right within the script without the P2SH wrapper. And once SegWit is activated, we're going to see Coinbase reward go to pay to witness public key hash or pay to witness script hash or pay to script hash that wraps a witness UTXO. If SegWit gets implemented based on SegWit 2x, which it seems like is the kind of path of least resistance at this point, could it happen that the economic majority keeps the SegWit part but never implements the hard fork part? Uh, there, there's no effective way to force the two parts to be tied together. You can't force people to adopt a change in the consensus rules in the future. SegWit2x as plan is a technical plan wrapped in a bigger political or governance plan, if you like. I, I say political, but I don't mean that in the partisan politics perspective. I want to be clear, I'm not being inflammatory there. I mean, not, I mean governance perspective, right? So the technical side says, this is how it's going to roll out. If people continue to run this software, first this happens, then that happens. The governance part says, 80% of us have committed 80% of the mining hashing rates, plus some part of the economic activity, it seems quite a big chunk of the economic activity, have come to this roadmap. And that means that we will continue to run software that implements this, whether that's the software that comes out of the BTC1 consortium, which mostly at the moment I think Jeff Garzik is writing, or you may see that the same 
governance model could be implemented in core, in which case people could run core and implement the same governance model. The, the power to do the hard fork subsequent to the activation of SegWit is not about because the code said so, because the code has no power to force people to run it. It's because the people who have backed this proposal have enough of the economic activity and mining hashing power to be saying, we're going to stick with this plan, and therefore we will run code that does these things. And there's a reference implementation, which is the BTC1 repository, but presumably you might see the same thing adopted by Core, or Bcoin, or Libitcoin, or BTCD, or any other client implementation. There, there's no way for a developer to force someone to run their code. And that goes just as much for core as it goes for BTC1 SegWit2x implementation. People may activate SegWit now and then decide they don't want to continue with this governance plan and therefore will not do the hard fork. The only thing that keeps that alliance together is, is the commitment to that roadmap. And that commitment is a, is a governance. It's a political decision. It's not, it can't be enforced by, by technology. Is Bitcoin done with hard forks? No. No, no. Okay, so no, you think Bitcoin isn't done with hard forks? No, there will be a hard fork probably within the next two years. And hard fork is on the official core roadmap. It's on the BeWho roadmap. It's on both sides of the scaling debate. The question is a matter of when and what goes in the hard fork. And the reason is the same one as the SegWit question, which is a hard fork requires a burdensome, significant upgrades and coordination of various parts of the Bitcoin system. And in the case of a hard fork for block size, there are some opportunities to address block size a bit more creatively than just increasing the number, which gives us a small breathing room, but doesn't actually change the scaling situation very much. Like if you double the block size right now, the, the base block size, that gives some breathing room, but we're very quickly going to reach that capacity. And then what, right? You've got to think a bit further than that. I think the, the question with a hard fork is when and what else goes into it. And so with any of these decisions, there is a tendency to want to do very little by some parties, like minimalist approach, uh, change as little as possible. And the other extreme is, listen, if you're going to do a hard fork and it's going to be a discontinuous change, why not fix a couple of the other architectural issues with the block header? The fact that, for example, the extra nonce that miners use is a massive kludge and is getting harder and harder to use from the miner's perspective because the mining hardware has gotten so fast that iterating over a 32-bit number doesn't give you very much. And so you need a lot more space in the block for a nonce. And there are a number of other things that, that could be fixed in an architectural change. One of the proposals around that is called SpoonNet by Johnson Lau. And he's now on the third iteration, SpoonNet 3, which is basically saying, if we're going to do a hard fork, let's fix the block structure by changing the architecture of the block, just like SegWit changes the architecture of the transaction and throw in two or three really important enhancements while we're doing it, but not everything in the kitchen sink as some would want, and not just the block size as some others would want, kind of a middle-of-the-road solution. 
And I think we're going to see a hard fork to do that. And I would like to see one that addresses not just block size or block weight in the case after SegWit, but more broadly addresses two or three other architectural changes in the block header that will really, really make future enhancements easier and potentially future hard forks easier. So given that we're going to have hard forks in the future, given that that's something that it seems like is necessary in order to keep the network evolving as it needs to, why is it preferable to do this change, which is an architectural change as a soft fork, while other things are okay to do as a hard fork? Why not do this as a hard fork or wait to put it into the hard fork in the future that we're talking about? So I guess the other context of this is that there are, correct me if I'm wrong, meaningful risks associated with deploying this as either a hard fork or a soft fork. So it's not that a soft fork doesn't have any risk associated with it, it just has a different profile. A soft fork has less risk than a hard fork, but more importantly, it has to do with coordination and choice. To me, a soft fork is preferable simply because if you don't want to implement segregated witness and segregated witnesses soft forks, you don't have to use it. You can continue using Bitcoin with an old client with exactly the same functionality as it has today, and you will still get benefits from the, the fees and, and other things simply because there'll be more space for others to move their transactions around, which will reduce the pressure on the network and the blockchain in general. And everybody benefits from that, whether they upgrade to, to SegWit or not. A soft fork is preferable in my mind, not only because it's less disruptive or requires less coordination, but also because it offers people the choice not upgrade. You're not forced to upgrade. A hard fork, everybody has to upgrade or they're not running Bitcoin anymore. So follow up on that. That is true. I've heard this argument from both sides, actually, that either a hard fork or a soft fork is more coercive than the other. And the argument in favor of why a soft fork is a kind of coercive approach is that if you have a hard fork and you don't upgrade, then as you said, you split off and you continue running Bitcoin as it's always run for you. And then this other, the, the network kind of goes off and is doing its own separate thing. So in that situation, you're not being forced to choose. You might be on the wrong side of the network. You might be out of the network uh, at that point until you know you decide to actually upgrade, but you still have coins on both sides. But you could do that with a soft fork too. Um, anyone can quite happily fork off the network at any point. And if there's a sufficient uh, desire to do that, even during a soft fork, you can say, listen, if, if SegWit activates, I don't want any part of this network and I want to, you, you can, you can easily hard fork off a soft fork upgrade. There's nothing stopping anyone from doing that. But it has to do with the status quo, right? In the, in the soft fork situation, the default action is that nodes will simply misunderstand transactions because essentially the soft fork is designed in such a way as to trick them to seeing these new types of transactions as an old type of transaction that they can understand, even if that's not actually accurate. So the default behavior there is that you're still on the same Bitcoin, but you're now out of touch with the network and you can actually have divergence because the network itself is doing something different and you are, you can kind of validate it, but you don't actually understand. Whereas with the hard fork, the default behavior is that if you don't proactively upgrade, well, you're still on Bitcoin. You still understand everything that's going on on Bitcoin, but you're not on the new version of Bitcoin. So, I mean, so do you understand the argument on yeah, kind of yeah. the, the one actually takes away choice? Yeah, I do. But I, I, I don't agree with that argument. I think that uh, in both cases, people have the choice to follow the consensus rules or not. And 
you know, the threshold for SegWit activation was set very, very high by court that it would have overwhelming consensus. The SegWit 2x proposal, in fact, reduces that threshold to about 80% instead of 95%, which is honestly making it slightly more coercive than it was before. Under the BIP-9 activation scheme, it it would take 95% agreement from the miners to activate SegWit. And the other 5% would be able to continue operating without upgrade. I think that's the least coercive approach. Back on um, scaling for a second. So we're kind of doing scaling with SegWit, not necessarily because that's the point, but because it's something that we can do relatively safely and relatively easily as kind of like a, a gimme while we're, you know, just like a kind of freebie while we're doing these other upgrades to the network. Yeah, SegWit, SegWit, SegWit delivers an immediate uh, increase of the block weight to two megabytes, which, which basically means that you can now fit twice as many transactions as long as some of them are transactions that are spending SegWit scripts are spending uh, outputs that are SegWit ready. So if you assume that a certain percentage of the network will upgrade their client software to SegWit, and we're seeing readiness across the industry, especially by exchanges and merchants who really, really need to address the fee situation, then I would expect that we'll see more than 50% of the transactions that are being issued having the ability to spend with a segregated witness, and that will mean an effective increase of capacity, a doubling of capacity as soon as SegWit is activated. So when we talk about transaction kind of expense or transaction capacity from an apples to apples perspective, basically segregated witness, you know, megabyte for megabyte or byte for byte basis is actually giving us substantially less capacity increases than we would get in a pure block size increase scenario. Is that accurate? Um, well, no, I, I disagree with that. And I think because segregated witness might be giving us less in a byte for bit scenario if you look at it from the perspective of a block. But that's only if you uh, assume that all nodes will store all things, validate all things, and continue to operate as if the only thing that changed was the size. But the truth is that whereas a block size increase would not address malleability, quadratic hashing, denial of service vector, script versioning, or the balancing out of the UTXO, it also doesn't give an opportunity for you to have a node that is fully validating of everything, but does not keep an archival copy of the signatures once validated, which would allow a lot more people to run nodes on a much smaller footprint while still fully validating everything. That's a significant change in the economics and resources required to run a node. So byte for byte, you know, who's byte and where is that byte? Are we talking about bytes that are being transmitted or bytes that are being stored? You've got to think about this from the perspective that every byte that's created in a transaction has to be stored 20, 30,000 times on 20, 30,000 nodes or however many nodes there are. And on 20, 30,000 hard drives and decentralization depends on having that information broadly replicated. By requiring everyone to keep signatures after they're validated, that is a significantly higher burden byte for byte across the network than creating the possibility of having some nodes archival and some nodes being fully validated, not archival. So I think 
In fact, the benefit across the network would be much greater with SegWit. Okay, so you made this point earlier, and I want to make sure that I understand it correctly. Right now, we have one type of full node, and that type of full node downloads the entire Bitcoin blockchain, validates every transaction and every signature that happens. No, not, not, not entirely. Let's, let's clarify that for a second. Current implementation of most nodes, and the majority is running core version 12 or above, I believe, does not validate historical signatures. So it will either assume at a checkpoint or before a certain block height that the signatures have already been sufficiently validated by an enormous amount of hashing power and validating nodes, and it will not validate signatures. It will validate everything else in the block, uh, make sure all of the transactions add up, the headers, the Merkle roots, etc., etc. But it only validates signatures in the most recent blocks and going forward. However, even though all these nodes traditionally do not validate historical signatures, they still store full blockchain with all of the historical signatures, and the signatures are probably 75% of the data size. I see. Okay. So then the difference is that once we have SegWit in, then we have effectively two different data structures. Are they two different data structures, or is it just a new tree in the existing one? Uh, it's a new branch in the existing one. So storage is not is implementation specific, really how exactly it's stored, but from an architecture perspective, it is a, a new Merkle tree just for the signatures whose root is embedded in the coin base of each block. Okay, so then the new archival node thing you're talking about, that's basically the concept of a node as we have it now, where all of this information is being downloaded, even if just kind of the most recent uh, batch of signature side stuff. Right. Yeah, fully validating and fully storing. Right. And then so the new node, the new type of node, so it would only get the transactions and it would validate the transaction side, but it wouldn't validate the signature data side? No, it would still be fully validating. It would validate both transactions and signatures, but then it wouldn't store the signatures after it's validated them or could only store the signatures for a certain depth and then prune them thereafter because they can now be conveniently pruned from the segregated witness output. So still fully validating. And that's important to understand. You can fully validate, because once you've seen a, a signature and you know it's been validated and you validated it, you don't really need to validate that signature again. It's, it's still committed to in the block header. It's still committed to in the Merkle tree. The block has to validate against that signature anyway. It's not like it's not counted. And all of that information is in the commitment of the block header. The only difference is that you don't need to store the signatures around. What is the value of running an archival node in this future we're talking about here? Is there a reason to do it? Well, absolutely. There's a reason because you able to bootstrap off that node. So people will still run archival nodes. You know, the, the disk space and bandwidth requirements are higher to run archival nodes. But if you want to be able to go back and historically look at signatures, you, you need to run an archival node. Then some people will run archival nodes, but not everyone has to. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here. Have you heard about the latest and greatest ICO? Me neither. But I can tell you where to find the original and best Bitcoin keychains. You know, the ones you see when you read an article about Bitcoin. And the sites feel absolutely obligated to connect the word Bitcoin with a picture of those little metal rounds. More often than not, the rounds of choice are the original bkeychain.com Bitcoin keychains. Made from beautiful, non-investment grade metals, 
These won't make you rich, but they also won't give you heartburn when you think about losing all those paper gains when all this inevitably collapses. And as a bonus, it's useful as a keychain. BeKeychain.com for all your cryptocurrency keychain needs. Now with Litecoin support. BeKeychain.com So circling back around on the kind of soft fork versus hard fork thing, there's an idea out there that hard forks are a, you know, more dramatic perhaps, but the correct way forward from a lot of perspectives for a lot of these changes and that you can have safer versions of things like segregated witness if you deploy them with a hard fork because you don't have the problem of some nodes still being on the network, but fundamentally misunderstanding the nature of transactions. Uh, you know, now we understand a bit more on the, the soft fork side and we've kind of gone off into the weeds a little bit here. Let's just circle back around to that for a second. What's the argument for doing this as a soft fork rather than a hard fork when we know we have hard forks in our future that this could go into? Well, I think the idea is soft fork now and then also hard fork in the future. And the reason is that the really best way to introduce SegWit is to change the architecture of the block header, right? Right now, the block header has limited space for nonce, limited space for a Coinbase transaction, and it has a single Merkle root commitment for the Merkle tree of the transaction hashes, right? That's the traditional header we have. All blocks have that header structure. That header structure has proven to be insufficient to the broader needs of the system. It doesn't give miners enough space for the nonce. And since the only commitments you can have are to the transaction tree, you can't add commitments into the header. Ideally, SegWit would be committed as a separate Merkle root from a separate Merkle tree right in the header of the block. But to do that, you have to do a pretty big overhaul of the transaction, uh, sorry, of the block header. The proposal to do that is, is SpoonNet 2 or SpoonNet 3. So, you know, the, the, the very same argument that says SegWit is too complex and too many changes, you know, you're doing an architecture change on the transaction. So, People think, let's get, you know, four fixes that are critical into this. This is the opportunity. And to then add to that and say, and we should do it in a hard fork. Well, if we do it in a hard fork, then we have to change the block header. And if we're going to change the block header, that makes it an even more complex choice, which introduces all kinds of risk, because that requires you to overhaul all of the block validation software as well much bigger change than simply doing SegWit as a soft fork. I think when SegWit was introduced, at first it was planned as a hard fork, and that's why it wasn't planned anytime soon. When Luke Jr. In kind of discovered a way to do this as a soft fork, that brought the timetable forward, because then it could be done in a more contained manner. You didn't have to change the architecture of the transaction and the architecture of the block simultaneously. So it's a two-step approach. Do the architecture of the transaction first, then do the architecture of the block with SpoonNet, at which point the SegWit commitment moves from being in the Coinbase, where it's going temporarily, to going into the block header, together with some other important changes for miners, for the nonce, and other things that SpoonNet does. The other big issue that, that I think is important is that we, we've seen in practice one of the great risks of a hard fork is disruption caused play or wipeout. Uh, 
A replay is when clients that create transactions, if these transactions are valid on both sides of the fork, then anyone can grab the transaction when it's played on one side of the fork and replay it on the other side of the fork. So that, you know, if you want to, you know, we saw that with Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. If you wanted to withdraw your Ether and you do a withdrawal in the, or a deposit into an exchange, and then it ends up transferring both Ether and Classic because the transaction gets replayed on both sides of the chain. The other big problem is wipeout, which is that if you have a hard fork that is contentious and you have this race condition, depending on how the rules play out, it is possible that one side of the fork can revert while the other one can't. One side of the fork, for example, may not accept the other side as valid. It's usually how it works, right? One side has a new set of rules that make the other side invalid. If that's the case, then the side that is seen as invalid can reorganize the side that's seen as valid. Um, and that can wipe out and cause a reorg that is potentially hundreds of blocks long. Imagine these two chains competing at a 5149 or, or even 6040 basis. Something changes in the market, the profitability minus change sides. The other chain gets longer and half the network is nothing because it, it's firmly locked into one chain. And the other half of the network says, oh, that chain looks longer and reverts hundreds and hundreds of blocks in a reorg that wipes out all of the transactions that happen. That's a huge risk. We've been sort of walking towards the segregated witness situation. And one of the things that has come out of it is both the user activated soft fork measure and then the user activated or minor activated, depending on who you listen to, hard fork measure, which was kind of the counter proposal to that. All the concerns you're talking about, I think, are addressed by both sides effectively building in replay protection and building in wipeout protection, because those are things that you can easily kind of foresee coming. So even in this kind of contentious soft fork scenario that we have, have right now, um, where there are multiple implementations that are all attempting to vie for this, and maybe we won't see it all happen now because SegWit appears to have you know broad minor support all of a sudden. There is no replay protection in BIP one forty eight UASF, and there's no wipeout protection either. Well, there's there's replay protection for people who adopt it. No, the non UASF non BIP one forty eight chain can get wiped out, and that's that's a big risk of big disruption. In the UASF sphere, that's seen as a feature, not a bug, as a way to make it economically a no-brainer to support UASF and a dangerous path to not support it. And, and you know, that's disruptive, and it carries significant risk with it. And so far in the SegWit2x proposal, we haven't really seen uh, code, but I can tell you the previous code we, ha we have seen, which was the Bitcoin Unlimited, had neither replay nor wipeout protection. So the idea that replay and wipeout protection are commonly understood and implemented features is not true. And that's one of the challenges. So I think we will see a hard fork. And I think that hard fork will come on the, on the heels of a soft fork SegWit activation. We're going to see an eventual hard fork, whether it's going to be in six months, a year, two years, I don't know. I think that hard fork should probably address the architectural challenges in a block. And it, to do it with the minimum amount of disruption, it should clean up SegWit, address the architectural challenges in the block, and have replay and wipeout protection. 
Well, that's SpoonNet. And there's significant research that's gone into these proposals. There's a whole website about hard fork research that has developed over the last year and a half as these discussions and debates have raged. You know, as I like to to think, you know, the benefits we've gotten out of this really contentious debate is an enormous amount of innovation in terms of soft forks, hard forks, and upgrade paths. Yeah, so let me chase this rabbit on the soft fork, hard fork thing for a second. So in a hard fork scenario where people don't upgrade, they essentially become their own little mini network. In a soft fork scenario, they don't become their own network. But there is, with things like user-activated soft fork, the potential to have people who don't make the change. Like you said, the economics are there to compel them to make the change because otherwise they might not. And if they didn't, then there is that potential for loss. The other side of the argument, part of the other side of the argument, came out with a proposal for user-activated hard fork, which would similarly allow people to then choose whether to offload onto the user-activated soft fork and be safe because it can't be rolled back, or to offload onto the user-activated hard fork and also be safe because it also can't be rolled back. So it's really only the people in the middle who are the concern. And it's those people in the middle who seem like they're the concern regardless of whether or not it's a soft fork or a hard fork that you proceed with. You know, because again, like the only thing that's really different about them is the implicit bias if you do nothing, right? If you do nothing in a soft fork scenario, the momentum is you remain compatible even if you don't understand what's going on. Whereas with the hard fork, it's you get, you know, you're on your own network, but uh, you still understand all the transactions and you could upgrade to the new version, the hard fork version, and then you would understand all the transaction. You'd still be up, but it takes that proactive action. So is it true that in both situations, the person who does nothing you know, again, with the user-activated soft fork kind of in mind, it seems like that's the same in both. It seems like the person who does nothing risks in both. Yeah, yeah. consensus is a participatory game, and you can have opinions, but you can't let your opinions take you against consensus by not acting. You know, if you don't vote in the election, you can't complain about the outcome. Uh, that's basically the same in any participatory system. And consensus is absolutely a participatory system. But, you know, this debate seems to be about whether it should be user activated or minor activated, a soft fork or hard fork. And th- this is not really a matter of choosing which is better between user activated or minor activated or soft fork or hard fork. There's only one system that is viable in Bitcoin, and that is an everyone-activated, non-disruptive, planned fork, an EANDPF, <laughs> right? That's the only yeah. thing that has low risk. Users can't go without miners or without developers. Developers can't go without miners or users. Miners can't go without developers or users. Five constituencies of consensus. And everyone activated, non-disruptive, planned fork is the type of fork. It can be soft, non-disruptive, planned, and everyone activated. It can be hard, non-disruptive, planned, and everyone activated. What it can't be is partially activated in minority in a disruptive way and without a plan. That is always risky. And now what we're seeing, in fact, is we're beginning to see uh, what looks like our first EANDPF, which is the activation of SegWit as an everyone-activating, non-disruptive planned fork. 
So Dr. Craig Wright wrote an article a couple of days ago about segregated witness and about sort of the economics that were concerning to him and to some others about this change that's being made here. And it sort of centers around the idea that we're fundamentally modifying the economic incentives that power the security of Bitcoin. And the primary argument I see here, and again, he's not the only one making this argument, um, but it's sort of indicative. The primary risk here is that by changing the way the transactions are being formulated, a situation is being created specifically by doing this as a soft fork, where miners could collude to effectively steal money in a way that goes beyond double spends. Right now, there's always the possibility that miners can attempt to double spend something in under certain network conditions. But as we've talked about on the show lots of times, that's actually a relatively narrow attack vector because it means that somebody has to actually be spending something at the time and then you have to race to try and win that. Whereas with segregated witness, because of the way that it's being engineered into the system, it basically would require miners to roll back the rules, right? To, to ignore the rules about who owns what for a minute, but they could do it and they could hypothetically choose to take all of the Bitcoin. So I, I'm going to preface this by saying uh, there's totally a valid argument here about killing the golden goose, right? The miners have a huge incentive not to kill the golden goose just from a purely technical perspective, assuming nothing about the kind of behavioral elements of this. Is this an actual like, is there an attack vector here that is new because we introduced this as segregated witness via a soft fork? No. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a new vector. And it's not a new vector because what we're basically saying here is that under 51% conditions, the miners can modify the consensus rules in such a way that they roll out changes that allow them to take segregated witness outputs, even though the rules after activation say they can't take segregated witness outputs. Well, that's in some ways, it's a truism, and it's certainly not anything new. In many cases of any, in, in fact, in any soft fork, miners can roll back the rules, and they can take things in violation of the soft fork rules. But to do that, they have to do a hard fork. And the truism lies in the fact that under hard fork conditions, miners can change any of the rules, whether those are soft fork rules or hard rules in the consensus, and steal. The question is, who follows them down that path? So let me give you a couple of counterexamples. Back in 2013, pay to script hash was activated. It was activated by, I, I guess you'd call it now a user-activated soft fork, but it, it was a user and miner-activated soft fork. P2SH was a fundamental change, not just in the syntax of scripts, but more importantly in the semantic interpretation of the consensus rules around scripts. If you look at a P2SH output, what it says is op hash, a hash, op equal, right? So it says present something that hashes to this hash, pay to the hash of a script. That's the syntax. The syntax says, in order to satisfy this, you have to present a script whose hash equals this. And if you do, that evaluates the true. That's the syntax. The semantics, however, are at that point bifurcated. And the semantics changed to say, not only do you have to present a script whose hash is equal, but then you also have to satisfy that script. Now, that's a really important difference because the semantic uh, interpretation of the consensus rules means that it's not enough to simply have a redeem script whose hash is equal 
as the syntax of the script says. But you actually have to satisfy that redeem script by perhaps providing a signature. If you don't satisfy it, the fact that you have the redeem script is irrelevant. Now, theoretically, under the same logic that Dr. Wright proposes here, miners back and say, you know, we're going to take the syntax as is and fork back the semantics of this rule and say, well, you know what? You don't have to validate the redeem script. You don't have to satisfy the redeem script. You just have to present it. That means that 14% of all of the UTXO in Bitcoin, which are stored under pay to script hash, uh, any one of those that has previously been spent, because um, when you spend, you present the redeem script to the network, the redeem script is now known to the network, and therefore you can satisfy the op hash hash op equal script if you look at it purely from a syntactic perspective. Just like if you rolled back the semantic interpretive segwit that says this new rule requires a witness, but you also have to validate the witness that's outside of the transaction. And you said, oh, this actually isn't anyone can spend. Yeah, syntactically it's an anyone can spend, but you can't separate the syntax from the semantics of the consensus rules. And so what Craig Wright is saying here is that we can roll back the semantics of the consensus rules. Well, yeah, of course you can with a 51%. You can hard fork and roll back semantics of any consensus rule. Let me give you another example the block header, you have the ability to put a timestamp, right? What does that timestamp have to be? Syntactically, it can be any number out of Unix epoch. Semantically, however, the consensus rules require it to be in a fixed range related to the previous block. You can't just skew the clock as much as you like. That's the difference between syntax and semantics. Could miners hard fork and ignore that? Yes, they could. Syntactically, the block would be valid. Semantically, everybody else would reject. Let me give you another example. In the Coinbase transaction, right now, the reward of coins has to be 12.5 Bitcoin, right? Semantically. Syntactically, you are allowed to put any value in there up to max coin. You could put 21 million Bitcoin as a reward in the Coinbase. What's stopping you from doing that is that upon validation, we're not just looking at whether the field can fit the value of 21 million coins. We're also looking at whether that is the correct reward for the current block height. And that is a semantic rule, just like, and you also have to satisfy the witness, or, and you also have to validate the redeem script. So yes, they could hard fork, and give themselves infinite reward in the Coinbase. They could hard fork and skew the clock. They could hard fork and say, you know what? For pay to public key hash, the signature D's nuts is now valid. And they could do that too with a 51%. And on their chain, they could sign away Satoshi's reward from the Genesis block with a signature that said D's nuts. Yeah, they could. Who would accept that? Nobody. And what actually protects us from a 51% attack of this nature, is that everybody else on the network would reject these blocks. It's the fact that everybody is a validating node, or anybody who's running a validating node is a validating node, not just the miners. Well, let's talk about that some more. So let's assume that the miners 51, you know, had more than 51% and they're able to do this. You're saying that it's actually the non-mining nodes that would be rejecting these transactions. Not just the non-mining nodes. If this is a 51% attack, then 49% of the mining nodes plus every validating node run by an exchange, a merchant, a user, a wallet, or any other version of the software 
other than the software that the 51% are running to run this hard fork, would reject that chain. And reject it because it may be the longest, greatest difficulty chain, but it is not greatest difficulty valid chain, which is the actual requirement. It would not be a valid chain if it's spending a segregated witness without checking the witness signature. It would not be a valid chain if it's spending a redeem script without validating the redeem script, satisfying the redeem script. It would not be a valid chain if it's creating a Coinbase transaction with a reward greater than the appropriate reward right now. It would not be a valid chain if it's spending the Genesis block reward uh, with an invalid signature. All of these things are validations that the protocol allows you to put those values in there, but everybody rejects those values because they're incorrect. Because consensus rules are more than just syntax. Consensus rules can be changed by a 51%, but if everybody else rejects those changes, then that chain is simply invalid. And yes, 51% of the miners can mine an invalid chain and change any rule they want. They can change the 21 million limit. They can change everything. Nobody will follow. So it doesn't matter then. Because one of the arguments that I've heard about this in terms of like why the P2SH argument for why this is safe based on kind of that transition is that that was not an entire network change. Not all, you know, transaction types switched over to that. And so the kind of uh, balance was not necessarily uh, weighted heavily towards that. So the benefit of attacking those addresses relative to basically SegWit is a going to be a comprehensive change in a lot of ways and relatively soon it looks like so the idea here is that lots and lots of this value is going to find its way into these transactions and while the incentive may have been tens of millions of dollars worth of value before or hundreds of millions now it will be billions because whatever effectively bitcoin's value is a large percentage of that will wind up in segwit type addresses but what you're saying here is that that's basically irrelevant because that can already happen right now because people can the miners can do anything they want right so this so this type of rule change is largely irrelevant because it's not them doing it that's the defining factor, even if they have 51%. It's the rest of the network choosing to accept it. Exactly. Consensus rules are not what the miners say they are. They are what everyone says they are. And so, yes, the miners can change any rule with 51% on that chain and can create a chain whose greatest cumulative difficulty is greater than the other chain. However, the rule for the network, and this is really important, is that the winning chain is the greatest cumulative difficulty valid chain according to the broad consensus rules that everybody's validating against, meaning that every other node on the network would reject those blocks, fail to propagate or refuse to propagate those blocks, refuse to recognize any of the transactions in those blocks, refuse to recognize the Coinbase reward in those blocks, refuse to exchange the Coinbase reward in those blocks for US dollars, yen, or yuan. Reflaner purchases at merchants with the coins that are in those blocks. Effectively, yes, the miners with 51% can create an altcoin in which any of the rules can be changed. But that doesn't mean anybody's going to follow them. And that applies to SegWit just as much as P2SH, just as much as any other rules. There are no rules that are less strong or more strong than other rules. It's all or nothing. And once segregated witness is activated on the main chain, it cannot be reversed because everybody activates and validates against that. The fact that it's a soft fork and some people are not validating 
that rule means that there will be a small minority uh, who, yes, can be fooled by the miners. That's a small minority. So again, the, the question is, what's the activation threshold? If the activation threshold for SegWit was 20%, yes, that would be a problem because then only 20% would be validating these new consensus rules. And it would be foolish to consider that a safe place to park your money. But with the activation threshold above 80 or 90%, it's it's no more problem than P2SH, which in fact activated with a much lower threshold. So with something like user-activated software, or really any of these things, it really comes down to how much consensus there is, how contentious these changes are, because that's the risk. Like if, if we had an August 1st user-activated software you know, launches and has 30%, then there would be an attack vector there because, like you said, most of the network actually would not be seeing those kind of new rules until kind of at a later point. Which is, yes. And the important thing to, to realize here is this. When SegWit activates, that doesn't mean SegWit transactions start happening. SegWit activates, that means that it is now possible for people to create, to start creating UTXO uh, transaction outputs that have segregated witness scripts in them, which can then be spent in a transaction with the witness separated. First, you have to create outputs, and then when you spend them, you can have the witness segregated. In order to create these outputs, you have to affirmatively choose to create segregated witness outputs. You don't do that the day of the activation, right? I would expect that people are going to activate SegWit, we're going to see it roll out across the network, and once it's locked in, uh, within a couple of weeks, you're going to start seeing people using the feature, not right away. People may experiment with it at first, but not everybody's going to say, okay, that's it, I'm going to take all of my money and get into SegWit. But once you see broad adoption of this, and it's been activated with a sufficiently high threshold, then it becomes a consensus rule like any other consensus rule, and there, there's no real additional incentive to roll back this rule than any other. Okay, so let's shift to talking about the economic assumptions that are implicit in SegWit. And this is a verbatim question. SegWit might be well-tested code, and it might have less bugs than, let's say, the XThin implementation in Bitcoin Unlimited. That doesn't mean, however, that the fundamental economic changes to Bitcoin that are implemented by this change are sound or safe. And this is what has to be contrasted to Bitcoin Unlimited or Classic or XT and not the code per se. For example, there has been no economic testing or experiments or data or analysis on the impact of the one to four discount on the ecosystem. So that's, again, the weighting that we were talking about earlier. The impact of allowing trustless multi-hop off-chain payment channels, a.k.a. Lightning Network and the impact on minor fees in more general terms uh, if the intent is to of SegWit to shift transactions off-chain. So you can tell there's a bit of a perspective on this that SegWit is for lightning. So if you want to address that part too, you can address that part too. But did you get the question? Yeah, I mean, again, this is the result of the fact that this entire debate has shifted from being a technical debate to being a political debate. And it's not about evaluating the technology on its merits. I think great... It, to, a, to a large extent, on, on all sides, this is not one side only, on all sides, the issues have been conflated with motivations and conspiracies about motivations and resistance to SegWit is entirely motivated by ASIC boosts. Desire for SegWit is entirely motivated by the Bilderberg Axel blockstream conspiracy to move everything to sidechains, liquid, and lightning. Um, also patents. You know, <laughs> and patents. You know, and uh, uh, honestly, it, it's, it's, I think, 
really doesn't help have this discussion. And the, the, let's evaluate the technical merits of each technology on its own. SegWit is not for lightning. SegWit is an actual change that opens the door for any advanced um, uh, scripting change, scripting upgrade, change transactions, complex scripts, including any type of payment channel, second layer channel, or other off-chain scaling solution, not just Lightning, but also side chains and drive chains and O-chains, oh my, all of them. But that's because SegWit fixes a problem. The reason you can't do Ning without SegWit is because of transaction malleability. Well, you can do Lightning without SegWit. And in fact, if SegWit isn't activated, we're going to see an implementation of Lightning that does not require a transaction malleability fix. It actually makes that implementation of Lightning less sophisticated. It doesn't allow some important privacy features, which is the ability to outsource monitoring of a of a adversarial channel closure to a third party without revealing any information about channel, uh, which is a fantastic feature, but depends on having fixed transaction malleability. The idea that if we don't fix transaction malleability, we're going to forestall off-chain transactions. I have news for you. Chain transactions are already happening. In fact, more than 80% of all transactions in Bitcoin are off-chain second-layer transactions. They're happening on a protocol that is not called Lightning. This protocol is called PHP MySQL. They're happening on the private databases of poorly constructed off-chainments between participants of a closed custodial exchange running on hot wallets where the exchange is entirely in control of all of the funds. Compared to that, trustless payment channels are a massive improvement over decentralization, privacy, fungibility, um, micropayments, and opening up the network to innovation. So this isn't a choice between let's keep it on-chain or move it off-chain. We already have moved it off-chain. 80% of the transactions or more are already off-chain. The problem is that today they're off-chain in trusted third-party custodial hot wallets that get hacked all the time. That's a terrible way to do it. And the idea that this will allow lightning, there is no allow. This is not something that you allow or decline. Off-chain payment channels are going to happen with or without SegWit, and nobody's going to ask for permission. Welcome. This is what permissionless innovation means. It means nobody gets to say, I'd rather have an orc where everything happens on-chain. Well, you don't get to choose that. If somebody wants to have off-chain networks built on top of Bitcoin, they're going to build them. They're going to build them at Coinbase, they're going to build them at BitPay, and they're going to build them with Lightning or not. You can't put up a wall and say, I want Bitcoin exactly as it was without any changes. Because innovation is going to continue happening at the edge of the protocol. And if you don't give a clean way of it by fixing transaction malleability, that just means a way of doing it or a trusted way instead of a trustless way, a trusted third party way of doing it. It's happening anyway. Yeah, SegWit isn't about Lightning. And even if it was, in my opinion, Lightning is a fantastic development that massively increases privacy and fungibility and is a significant improvement over what is actually happening in the economics of the network. The market has already chosen to do off-chain transactions on private, closed, trusted third-party custodial networks, which is a disaster for privacy, censorship resistance, fungibility, 
KYC AML control and centralization of Bitcoin. We can do a lot better with Lightning. So we don't need SegWit to have Lightning. No. We don't. So we don't need SegWit capacity increases to deploy Lightning. Nope. Is Lightning still Bitcoin? Absolutely. Lightning is absolutely Bitcoin. It's Bitcoin with a turbo boost and a Tor network built on top, which every transaction on Lightning is a Bitcoin transaction. It's simply a Bitcoin transaction that has deferred clearing, meaning that you don't publish it until you want to settle the the transaction. And people will find ways to do this on any network that allows you to do deferred clearing. All you need have is some form of time lock and you can build time lock and multi-sig are the only two prerequisites you need to do lightning now if you want to do lightning efficiently cleanly and with privacy protections so that you can actually have channel monitoring without having to be online all the time then transaction malleability fix makes it a lot cleaner but lightning can happen regardless of segwit and will happen Great. Thank you for that. Here's another question kind of on the scaling side of things. So this is another big theme that I see over and over again is as we've talked about, you know, this is not really a technical discussion. It's more about neither side really trusting each other to make the right decision. And that trust sort of then shows its way into these questions. So uh, let's pretend we're in the future. Segregated witness has already been activated, but core essentially, for whatever reason, does not support or allow, quote unquote, a hard fork to go through that upgrades actual on-chain capacity. Let's just say that it turns out for whatever reason, SegWit isn't helping scaling as much as was projected, whether it's not as much user uptake on SegWit transactions or kind of other things like that. In that scenario, which I think a lot of people are concerned about, what is the path forward for scaling if it seems like the you know, if, if it seems like the reticence to hard fork or to increase on-chain size continues uh, and the current agreements or current plan isn't honored? I think we're going to see a hard It's as simple as that. I think we're going to see a hard fork regardless. A hard is going to happen. It's going to happen in order to further increase the scale. I hope it doesn't happen on its own without replan and wipeout protection. And I hope it's not simply a two megabytes upgrade, but instead we address some of the block header architecture issues. There's an opportunity there to massively improve the block header architecture that will then allow a whole bunch of other solutions to to scaling. I mean, scaling is a multifaceted problem. You don't solve it simply by making the bucket bigger, right? For example, one of the things you can do in the in the block header is create a flexible commitment structure so you can commit to the Merkle roots of the transactions, the Merkle roots of the witness, but also other stuff. Some suggestions, for example, are to commit the state of the UTXO in order to be able to do both fraud proofs as well as UTXO pruning and a much more scalable UTXO structure. And committing the state of the UTXO, whether it's through some of the proposals that Peter Todd's been working on with Merkle Mountain Ranges that allow you to do, you know, very efficient inserts and updates into a rolling asymmetric tree or various things like that, there's an enormous opportunity there to do some scaling improvements with that. I also believe that we need to start thinking about the broader implications of, of sidechains, right? There's an opportunity here, whether through Lightning or sidechains, to create truly decentralized multi-currency exchanges. Basically, the ability to initiate a payment on one blockchain and have it convert into a currency on another blockchain and be able to fluidly move through atomic swaps, two-way pegs, 
sidechains, drive chains, or Lightning Network across any of the blockchains. That's a, that's a huge opportunity there for everyone, really, to make this whole ecosystem much more fluid and cohesive, you know, chains of chains. So I hope that what we see is a hard fork that creates a future for Bitcoin and isn't simply reactive to one problem, but is visionary and allows us to address many opportunities and not just solve problems, but introduce opportunities within Bitcoin to increase decentralization, to increase fungibility, to increase privacy. These are critical issues and opportunities within Bitcoin. But here's the thing. If developers do not respect the market dynamic, then their power evaporates. As long as the developers are delivering great maintenance, great code, aligned with the interests of the network on a good time scale, the market chooses to run their software. If they stop doing that, the market will choose to run alternative software, and developers probably have the least power in the ecosystem as a whole, because it is entirely voluntary as to which code you write, and now there are many, many alternative implementations, and the, the number of developers is increasing. Core continues to have dominance over the software because they continue to write the best maintained, most secure, most reliable code. That's my opinion. But, you know, I don't take sides here. I really don't care about who writes the code. I care about what code is being written and how that affects the, the, the delicate ones between decentralization and scale. And so if the solutions are not coming from core, they will come from elsewhere and, and core will lose power. That's the bargain of consensus. You have power as long as you're aligned with consensus. If you're no longer aligned with consensus and the other four constituencies of consensus decide to go elsewhere, you lose. And that applies to everyone in the consensus environment. I'd like to maybe add one more thing. And I don't know if we can phrase this as a question. But I think it's it's really important to discuss this. As I've expressed opinions on this topic, I've tried to keep my opinions focused on the technical merits of each proposal and looking at the technology. To me, this is not about who created it. It's not about the person. It's not about the personality. And it's it's really not about the politics. It's about whether the technology achieves the goals of decentralization and scaling for Bitcoin. Invariably, when I say something that one camp likes, I get accused by the other camp of being a shill, sold out, etc., etc. And I'm quite happy with the fact that over time, I have been accused by both camps in somewhat equal measure. So I'd like to clarify that for just one second. I have not taken any money and have no financial or other relationship with any of the parties in this debate. I am not funded by any of the large corporations in this space. I don't receive money from Blockstream. I have never received a penny from Blockstream or anyone connected to them. I have not received a penny from Bitmain or anyone connected with them. Most of my funding comes from speaking at conferences, selling books, and my Patreon supporters and that gives me the independence to not be beholden to financial... I speak my opinion because it's my opinion. 
People find it unfathomable that I might disagree with them without being paid by someone to disagree with them. But unfortunately, I have opinion, and my opinions are not rigid. They change over time. I learn and change. In fact, in the beginning, I thought it was actually advantageous to do a hard fork to a scale increase. And I agreed with Gavin in the early days that we should have a scaling debate sooner rather than uh, later. Then my opinion changed. I started to see that hard forks were a bit riskier. And I, I really do think that SegWit is a good technology solution. I think that Lightning is a fascinating technology solution. But you know, I think it's important to state that. I'm not being funded by anyone to hold these opinions. Uh, never have been, never will be. And just because I disagree with you doesn't mean that someone paid me off. I actually have my own opinions. And I think it's also important to say that I don't take any of this personally. This isn't about this person or that person or the other person and whether they said or didn't say promised or didn't promise are behind or have supported or have written the code. We judge people by not judging people, but judging the technology that's being produced. And I think that's really important to keep front and center in this entire debate. Technical decisions on technical merits, regardless of origin, without appeal to authority. There are no rulers here. And I'll say one other thing, which I think is really important. I am absolutely against censorship. And I find it appalling that on many of the forums, there's very heavy-handed moderation. There's very heavy-handed vote brigading. I came out against that from the very beginning, and I don't participate in those forums because of the very heavy trolling, very heavy censorship, moderation, vote brigading, and manipulation of public opinion with shills and sock puppets and all of that. That, however, is not a reason to adopt one technology over another. It's a reason to denounce censorship and then still evaluate each technology on its own merits. And that's the best I can do. And sometimes I'm going to be wrong. But if I'm wrong, I'm wrong on my own. I didn't get paid to be wrong. I think that's very well said. That really is an undertone in all of these conversations is just the assumption of bad faith. And I have a whole section of questions here we didn't get to that are basically SegWit is the result of bad faith, which is sort of that argument in long form that you just think rather elegantly addressed. And that's true for everybody in this space who has any sort of public opinion, any sort of public persona whatsoever. I try to keep a very low personal profile because I don't at all like any of the drama that happens with all of this stuff. But even I, anytime I post anywhere with any sort of opinion, you know, like it's the same thing. It's like, oh, you're paid off. You're just a shill for this or that. And it's such a silly way to think about this because you're essentially invalidating. As you said, you said it much better than I did. So I'll just leave it at that. But these, these purity tests and litmus tests and circular firing squads I understand that there's a lot of inflamed passions and, you know, Bitcoin and this whole cryptocurrency space does attract people who are extremely skeptical of authority, of leaders, of narratives, of media and all of that, as we all should be. But that does create a slight tendency towards conspiracy theorizing on everything. Um, and while I think there, there are some people who are 
investing in sock puppeting and disruptive behavior just to sow dissent and chaos within the community. Of course, that happens in any grassroots community when there are big interests at stake, right? There are provocateurs, and some of those are paid provocateurs who are doing it just for a paycheck. But a lot of this is self-inflicted. It's a big circular firing squad where cypherpunks are accusing cypherpunks of not being sufficiently pure cypherpunks, which is ridiculous because out there, guess what? JP Morgan Chase and Goldman Sachs are laughing their ass off while we take pot shots at the other. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Andreas Antonopoulos and Adam B. Levine. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and Mind to Matter. This episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin. Thanks for listening.